The God of Wisdom holds many scrolls with his great library. Unfurl the papyrus and breathe in its ancient scent. Chronicles of our world as it was, as it might be, and how it could have been. Come with us as we explore the stories within. The Books of Toth. Hello, and thank you all for taking time out of your busy schedules to come to this paleontology conference. Now, I'm perfectly aware that it is quite the lovely day, and I apologize in advance for keeping you all cooped up in here. I'd like to draw your attention to the fossil that is next to me. This is just one example in a series of discoveries very much like it. It dates back to over 100 million years ago, and is one of the oldest such specimens that has yet been discovered. The first thing you'll notice, of course, is the skeletal structure. Though a bit odd to our eyes, it was quite common among creatures of the era. The small size of the head has often been assumed to be an indication of low intelligence. However, recent studies have concluded that these creatures may, in fact, have established some sort of society. Ha! <laughs> I see some of you rolling your eye stalks already. Do understand that I don't mean to suggest anything on the scale of our own civilization. Rather, they could have at least built the rudimentary aspects of a civilization before they became extinct. It is certainly humbling to think that these ancient organisms may have been starting civilization while our ancestors were still swimming in the oceans. Now then... Let's examine some of the other physical features. You will notice the large eye sockets and reduced brow bridge. Based on surviving members of this animal's class, we have determined that, most likely, they were primarily nocturnal. Their teeth are rather flat, which seems to indicate a primarily vegetation-based diet. You will also notice the pronounced backbone, again, quite common among chordates. There are several competing theories as to why these creatures were ultimately driven to extinction. The presence of shocked quartz within the strata these fossils are found in does seem to suggest that an asteroid impact played some role. Granted, the lack of iridium deposits, as one would expect with an asteroid impact, are a bit odd. There is still much we do not know about our planet's prehistoric past, but we learn more with each passing year, and we've certainly made some exciting discoveries as of late. As many of you are aware, these creatures are, thus far, the only known example of their genus that we have discovered. This would suggest that they simply died out due to not being adapted to a changing environment. 
Whatever the reason, I am fully confident that we will find the answer in time. If you'd like to see the answer faster, may I suggest donating to my university? Okay, bit of shameless self-promotion there. I will now turn things over to the Q&A section. Please raise your tentacles in the air if you would like to participate. Ah, a healthy number I see. Okay, how about uh, the one with the blue rings on your bell? Hi. First of all, I wanted to say I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, why, thank you. That's always lovely to hear. So, what are your thoughts on the creature's breeding strategy? Case selection or R selection? And what are your views on the theories that some chordates gave birth to live young? Oh, case selection for sure. We have found multiple specimens of mixed ages in very close proximity to one another. Clearly, this was a highly social animal. Now, as for your second question, it is true that we do have some tantalizing evidence that some chordates did indeed give birth to live young. However, all surviving chordates lay eggs. This suggests that egg laying was the rule rather than the exception. As for the creature next to me, well, again, we can't say with absolute certainty. That said, if I were the gambling type, I'd bet on it being an egg layer. The females have been found to have significantly wider hips than the males. No doubt this is to accommodate the eggs during birth. Okay, moving right along to the one on the left with the yellow eye stalks. Artistic reconstructions of corets used to be rather conservative. Little more than skin stretched over an endoskeleton. In more recent times, however, we've seen artists getting more speculative, adding layers of fat, flaps of skin, and even full coats of hair. What are your thoughts on the matter? I think it is important to contextualize the older art. It's easy to laugh at now, but at the time, it was quite revolutionary. Prior to that, chordates were almost universally depicted as slow, lumbering, dim-witted creatures. The paleo-art revolution changed all that. We began to see them instead as dynamic, highly active, intelligent creatures. A lot of us got into paleontology thanks to that art. Now, that being said, I am very excited about all of the new innovations. There's only so much that bones alone can tell you. Soft tissues just don't fossilize very well. And behavior doesn't fossilize at all. I mean, imagine you were an alien and you only knew of us based on fossils. Would you have guessed that our species is as intelligent as it is? I think perhaps not. So... Personally, I'm glad artists are taking more chances and letting their imaginations expand more. And for the record, I think chordates look fantastic when given full coats of fur. How about next we have uh, on the right with the, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh dear, um, the, um. It's okay. You can say I only have one manipulator tentacle. I have to ask, did you leave the other at home? <laughs> no. An echinoderm ate it, actually. Nah, I'm just messing with you. It's a congenital defect. Oh, um, I see. And 
what is your question? Now, you mentioned that you believe the creature to have developed civilization, but to what extent? Stone Age? Bronze Age? Iron Age? Also, you mentioned that shock quartz can be produced by asteroid impact, but that isn't strictly true. Isn't it true that an atomic bomb can also produce shock quartz? Not to sound like some conspiracy theorist, but I do seem to recall that the strata the fossils come from exhibits noticeably higher levels of radioactivity. That does seem a bit out of place, no? There isn't any evidence of metallurgy, well, so far as we know. On the other tentacle, we have found some sticks that do show signs of obvious sustained burning in the same strata as this creature. However, we can't rule out the possibility that this might have been caused by natural means, um, such as a brush fire. We've also found several rocks that could very well be hand axes or arrowheads, but again, we can't rule out the possibility that they were formed by erosion. As scientists, we must always do our best to be aware of our own biases and blind spots. Our brains are very good at seeing patterns when there really aren't any. To the second point, well, I'm afraid I cannot say. There's still much we just don't know of the prehistoric past. Major asteroid impacts aren't, as far as we know, a particularly common occurrence. But on a large enough time scale, well, anything is possible. This does still leave the question of the higher radiation levels, and I concede that I have no explanation for that. Still, while it is good to keep an open mind, you don't want to be so open that your brain falls out. <laughs> After all, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, next up, we'll go to the left. Um, you with the red stripes? I noticed you never referred to the specimen by a specific name. Does it really not have a name? Believe it or not, the answer is yes. Blame it on the petty squabbles of academia, but so far, nobody has been able to agree on a name. Though sometimes this creature is referred to as a human for the sake of convenience. Human? Well, that's an interesting choice. Does it have any special meaning? Um, no, not really. It's just a silly nonsense word. Like I said, only a placeholder. Ah, I see. Thank you. Okay, we have time for one last question before we take a small break. You in the way back. What's your question? Well, this is a bit off topic, but will snacks be served? Or should we have brought our own? And that's our cue. Refreshments are available in the next room. We shall now adjourn for a brief recess and then regroup for more exciting discussions of our planet's prehistoric past. You have been listening to The Books of Toth. Today's episode was Paleontology Conference, written and produced by Sam McDonald. The professor was played by Marnie Warner. The members of the audience were, in order of appearance, Amy Young, Faye Holiday, Juan Cruz III, Tiffany Perdue, and Melissa Bowens. 
The opening narration was provided by Gino Samuel. Our opening and closing music was Desert City by Kevin McLeod. Check out more of his stuff at his website, incompetech.org, or on YouTube. The bell sounds and the crowd murmurings were provided courtesy of freesound.org. All other sound effects were provided by Jason Steele of the YouTube channel FilmCow. I'm Sam McDonald, and from all of us here at the Books of Toth, we thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.